man, I'm glad to be in. So uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm glad to be together this afternoon. If you have a Bible, Ephesians 1, we'll get there in just a second. But a few weeks ago, um, my parents and grandparents came to visit, which is a pretty regular thing for us. And the cool thing was my grandpa was 86. Um, Maddox is named after my grandpa Jay. And so um, Maddox Jay is his middle name. Maddox is not actually his name. So, I realized that didn't make any sense when I said Maddox is named after my grandpa Jay. You're like, man, how's that work? Um, he's named after him. And so they got to come and meet Aniston, which is a really cool thing. And I always tell my boys stories, you know, from when I was growing up. And my, me and my grandpa used to go fishing all the time. And so they think he's like a legend and knows everything about fishing, which may be true. Um, and so when they were here, they were just begging, like, can we go fishing with, they call my dad Pop. Can we go fishing with Pop and Pop Jay? Uh, we would love to do that. And so they thought that was awesome. We made plans to do that. And it was an absolute mess. Like, I don't know if you've been fishing with a four and a five-year-old recently, and then I throw on top of that an 86-year-old, but um, it was pure comedy from start. Hey, there's Winnie Cat. Winnie Cat, hey. And Malachi, there he is. I think he's in there. I hope he's in there. I don't know where else he would be. <laughs> we literally just, like, went crazy for you guys, and then you're walked in. Awesome. Um, so I don't know if you've been fishing with a four-year-old, a five-year-old, an 86-year-old recently, but it, it, it was pure comedy from start to finish. Um, uh, from the moment we stepped on the dock at Chester Frost, it was chaos. Maddox, of course, because this is the way Maddox is, caught a fish on the very first cast because that's how he, and then he rubbed it in his brother's face the rest of the day. That was the only fish that we caught. A few minutes later, uh, my dad is helping Ezra cast because that's something Ezra has never done but thinks he should be able to. I don't know if you're, you, you've met a kid like that. And, and because grandparents greatly overestimate their grandchildren's ability to do things, my dad was in total agreement with this. Like, yeah, you should cast your own fishing pole. It'd be great. And so I'm helping Maddox do something, I probably just like not fall in the water. And I hear my dad coaching Ezra on how to cast. And I hear him saying, hey, press and hold the button and then pull the rod behind your head and bring it forward quickly. And as you do, release the button at the reel at the same time. And I'm like, are you serious, Dad? There are adults that can't do this. Like, and I was like, yeah, no, I got it. Yeah, this is it. I've got it. Um, it, it in my head, right, uh, like the, the interior alarm bell starts going off. I'm like, we should not be doing this. You should not be telling my son to do this. I know him. I live with him. And I look up to see Ezra following my dad's directions perfectly. I mean, it was really amazing, except for the only issue was Ezra hadn't given him time to get his face out of the way. And so I look up just in time to see Ezra's hook lodge itself directly into my dad's cheek. And somehow, by the grace of God, I promise you, by the grace of God, the barb on the hook somehow didn't get stuck. And so we've been there for five minutes and already only narrowly avoided a trip to the ER. Um, Maddox is frozen in fear. Ezra is terrified that he just killed his grandfather. And my grandpa (laughs) is giggling. My 86-year-old grandfather is giggling as he just watches the chaos unfold. (laughs) Uh, we recover. We learn from our lesson. Dad is now casting for Ezra, and as he does, the $5 Spider-Man fishing pole somehow malfunctions. I don't know how. We invested a lot of money in it. The line sticks, and the momentum of the cast carries the rod out of my dad's hands directly into the lake. <laughs> and before it even hits the water, Ezra loses his brain. I mean weeping, sobbing. As the pole sinks slowly to the bottom of the lake at Chester Frost, I see in my father's eyes the commitment and dedication and love that he has for his grandson, and I know immediately he is about to jump in this lake. Like I just saw it happen. He's about to jump in this lake. This man, grown man, my father, who raised me from an infant into a, like he raised me, is about to jump into a lake to save his grandson the pain of losing his $5 fishing pole that he had totally forgotten even existed until yesterday. 
And sure enough, into the lake goes my dad. And he saved it. He saved our family from financial ruin and Ezra from <laughs> years of therapy. Like, everyone at Chester Frost is looking at us. Uh, on the, you guys know the dock at Chester Frost? Everyone is, is swimming on the beach looking at us like aliens have landed on the end of the dock. Pure chaos. And then we go home because that was the end of the, that's the end of it. We couldn't do it anymore. And I'll tell you that story, one, because I just wanted to tell it to somebody because I think it's hilarious. I've been telling it to everybody that I, that I know recently. But really, I tell you, tell you that story because of what happened when we got home. So we get home, and Kristen and my mom and grandma pulled in, and Dad's got all of his stuff laid out on the hood of the car to dry, a little bit of blood, like a little drop of blood on his cheek. And I'm throwing all the fishing stuff away so that we never have to do that again. And, and before Kristen can get out of the car, Maddox is standing on the running board, head in the window, and he's telling the story. And if you think I talk fast, you should hear Maddox excited. This is what he said, as best I can recall. We got there, and on the first cast, I caught a fish in my, with my worm pet, and it was bluegill, and I caught one, but Ezra didn't. And Pop was helping Ezra cast his line into the water, but Ezra went too fast, and his hook caught Pop right in the face, but it didn't stick. Pop was really lucky, but then Pop wanted to cast for Ezra, so Ezra didn't hook him in the face again. And when, we, when he did, guess what? The pole went flying out of Pop's hand and landed in the water, and then Ezra started crying because he was sad that his pole was going to sink to the bottom and never come back. And then Pop jumped into the water, and he rescued Ezra's pole and threw it on the dock, but then Pop was stuck in the water because he couldn't get out, and he was yelling at Dad to help him, but Dad was just lying on the dock laughing, and Pop Jay was just watching and laughing, and guess what then pop had to walk all the way back to the car and his stuff was all wet and guess what his phone got in the water too and it might not work anymore and Kristen is just receiving it <laughs> like all of this she's like dude let me put the car in park let's take a breath let's get out and talk about it right and I go have you ever been there I mean not there because that's an outrageous situation like have you ever been there have you ever seen something that you just have to tell someone about experienced something that you just have to relate to some other human being, felt that kind of need and urgency to share something good or funny or important. And that's why I tell you the story, not because it's hilarious, but because Maddox had seen something. I'm not telling it to you. Like, my family is that. We are that thoroughly human. Like, that's just a day in the life. I'm not telling you that to, to prove how thoroughly human we are. I'm telling you that because Maddox was there, and Maddox had seen something. He'd experienced something, and he wanted his mom to know about it. He had to tell Kristen what happened, and I think that sort of feeling that Maddox was feeling in his heart as, he, as the story welled up and flowed out of his mouth, faster than probably I even tried to articulate it there, is I think maybe a little bit, about, a little bit of how Paul felt as he, as he sits down to put pen to paper and write a letter to the Ephesian church. Um, if you have your Bible, stand with me. Let's read the beginning of this letter together. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. If you have your Bibles, this is the word of the Lord. For the people of God, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under, on heaven, in heaven and on earth under Christ. Let me catch my breath. You remember last week when Brooke said that Paul wrote paragraphs that should have, sentences that should have been paragraphs? This is one of them. 
In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, and in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated this afternoon. If you were here last week, I mean, you guys do remember Brooks saying, right, that Paul writes sentences that should be paragraphs. That's the one. I mean, literally all of that in Greek is one sentence. In your Bibles, they added some periods, they made a paragraph break in there, but that's not how Paul wrote it. We get all caught up on grammar, I guess, and so we put periods and commas and things. He didn't put a single one, and there's all one sentence. Paul wrote it like Maddox told it. One big sentence. And the truth is, those words, there's so many of them, and it's so, like, I'll be honest, not confusing, but dense. Like, it's hard to access, but if you sit down and read them, they are some of the most beautiful. And if they are true... I'll show my cards. I think they are. They are the most life-changing words that have ever been written in one big, long run-on sentence. It's like Paul, this man, right, that we've talked about last week, whose life had been undone and remade in an encounter with the risen Jesus while on his way to arrest some of the very first Christian followers of Jesus. That man who becomes a serial church planter, chased from city to city by the authorities and people angry about the way in which the gospel of Jesus was upsetting the social order and established religious traditions of the day. That man who calls, uh, who calls all of the success and status and influence associated with his life as a Jewish thought and religious leader, garbage, like he literally calls them garbage and not just garbage, like look it up in the Greek when you get home if you want to tell your grandma that the Bible has curse words in it, because it does, that's what he considers them. It's like that man, this man, when he sits down to write this letter to this church of people that he loves, this group of people who follow Jesus to encourage them into the life that Jesus has for them, it's like he can't even contain himself. He sits down and pen touches paper and he doesn't have time for punctuation. I imagine him, and he may not like this comparison, but we can chat about it in the fullness of the kingdom later, I guess, when, when we all get there. But I imagine him a little bit like Maddox telling his mom about the chaos at Chester Frost. You know, it's like, I gotta, you got to know this. i got to get this out or I'm really going to explode. Completely unable to contain himself until he gets it said. No time for periods, no time for a breath, no time for a break. You have to know because knowing this literally changes everything. You cannot live a second longer, I feel like Paul feels in his heart, without knowing what, I, what it is I have to tell you. It's like if you've forgotten, remember. If you've not heard, listen. If you're unsure, let me explain it to you. It's that important. Right, Woodsy? I love it. And I go, why? Like, why start this way? Why start a letter this way to a group of people, reminding them of what they already know to be true? Starting with the basics again. And I think there's a little bit of like egotism in my heart when it comes to thinking about the basics, because like with Jesus, it's just the basics. Like that's all you need. And it, may sound, it might sound basic, but it's the most significant thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe. And I don't think you could start any other way. Like, this is the reality that Paul says you have to know when he puts his pen to paper and it comes flowing out of his heart. That, that There's nothing, hear me say this, there's nothing 
that he will communicate or that we will talk about over the next six chapters that is more important than this. Everything he will write to them after this flows out of this reality. If this isn't true, none of it matters. If this isn't true, none of what he's about to write matters. But if this is true, then all that will come is imbued with deep significance and meaning. If they don't understand this, if we don't understand this, they'll misinterpret and we'll misinterpret the rest of what he's writing. But if they get this, then the doors to the world of life with God, I believe, will be thrown open for them. And I think the same thing is true for us as we read Paul's letters to the church. And this is a really quick word before we jump in about how we read different kinds of literature in the Bible because this is really important. If we're going for anything this summer, it's like, let's be like, let's raise our level of biblical literacy so that we can actually access, I think, what God has for us as we, as we come to the Bible, right? I think a lot of times in my life, I'm like, oh yeah, the Bible, the book, front to back, left to right, top to bottom, right? That's how we read it. So, yeah, that's true. But like, let's, as a church, let's be committed to raising our biblical literacy together so that when we pick this thing up, we can like interact with it in a way that, that leads us to deeper faith and greater love for God and what he's done. But just a quick, a quick word about how we read this kind of literature in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is more like a library than it is a book. Okay, that's really important. It has different genres and styles and authors, and they're all telling a cohesive, beautiful story, but they're all telling it sort of in their own ways and from their own perspective and on their own terms. And they're all compiled, and in that compilation, we get a beautiful picture of what God is doing over the course of hundreds of years from radically, at times, different perspectives. That's really just important for us to be aware of as we come to the Bible, as we come to the text, especially if we're going to sit down together and say, over the course of a summer, we're going to look at one part of this really important text. This is a letter. We've said it several times. And we need to read it like a letter. That would be helpful. And what I, what I mean by that, it, there's a lot of things there, but primarily, this is what I mean for, it, for us today, I think, when I say that, that none of us, I mean, maybe, we can talk about it if you would. We really probably should talk about it if you would. But I don't think any of us would get a letter from someone and then skip the first two paragraphs of that letter and then read it, right? Like, it just wouldn't make sense. Like, none of us would read it and say, what did Grandma say in chapter 3, verse 7 of the letter she just sent us, right? Has anybody gotten a handwritten letter recently? Like, no one would do that. No one would do that. Without the greeting, without knowing who it's from, why it's being sent, the rest of it doesn't really necessarily make sense. At least the context in which it was sent, we kind of lose, right? Our ability to understand it well would be inhibited if we did that sort of thing. Like, what are we even talking about? Like, what is this? But if I'm honest, that's the sort of way that I've read letters in the New Testament, right? We call them books, which isn't necessarily helpful all the time. And in doing so, we alter the way in which they're fundamentally read because you read a book differently than you read a letter. True or false? We pick up Paul's letters to the church and we divide them up like they're legal contracts, which is in itself, in its own genre, which actually is in the Bible. This just isn't it, Okay. And we go to specific parts looking for what he said about specific issues without pausing for a moment and asking ourselves questions like, how does this document, how does this letter want to be read in the first place? Or in what context are the things that we're examining under a microscope even being talked about in the first place? Or what are the rules for reading this document and understanding it, that pla- and understanding it um, what are the rules that it places on itself for that? Or what do we need to know in general to, lead, to read this letter for the specifics? Maybe this question, what does Paul want us to know from the outset so that we can grasp the context into which the rest of the letter is written and comes to us? And there are some things, I say all that say, I think this, there are some things that I think he wants us to understand as foundational from the outset to who this group of people is as they form part of the church of Jesus 
and for how they relate to the story of Jesus in their lives. In other words, here's the perspective. I think he gives it to us in the greeting of this letter, in the opening of this letter. Here's the perspective with which they must read this letter if they're going to carry forward the vision that Jesus has for their lives as they've been caught up together in this move of God in this church in the city of Ephesus. And I think that's not just for them. I think that's for us too. I think these things are things that we need to have like crystal clear 2,000 years later as members of that same church, well, not that exact same church, but the same church of Jesus, right? In Chattanooga, Tennessee, as we receive these words, as the words from Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church that meets here in this place called City Collective. Does that make sense? These are the things I think Paul wants us to see. There's several. We could spend a million years here. It would, feel, it would be time well spent. But there's just three of them that I want to name for us as we jump in this afternoon. Together, you have to understand. And you have to remember, Paul says, you have to live out of the truth that this is the first one. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus. That every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. He starts the letter. He says, you have to know this. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. And I go, have I become so insulated from the reality of the gospel that I just read those words and I'm like, cool. Paul says, every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus. He says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. First thing he says to him, Hey, I'm Paul. Remember this. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Jesus. He says, do you know how good and how kind God is? That he has given us, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in his son Jesus. That he writes to a church, and some of what he writes that we'll get into for the rest of the summer will be encouraging. And some of what he writes will be challenging. But he begins this letter by telling them that they have all of the internal resources necessary to live both the encouragement and the challenges into existence already. He's like, before you read the letter, before you read what I'm going to write, you have to know this, that in Jesus, God has given this gathering of people, not just that one, but this one, this family, every spiritual blessing every gift necessary, every resource needed for the transformation and discipleship that Jesus has called us into, already given. Every drop of spiritual power they need to love each other, no matter what, already given. To live as an outpost of the kingdom of God in enemy territory, already given. Every bit of strength required to love one another in the way that Jesus has loved them. Every bit of patience to love their families well. Every bit of courage needed to stand against the temptation and schemes of the enemy. They already have it. Paul will say some wildly amazing things to this church. He will say things to them like this. He will say, when the church gathers, it declares the glory of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Paul will say that. We'll talk more about that this summer. This is like my favorite part of Ephesians, so I'm just going to say it every time I teach until we get to actually talk about it. But like, I go, did you know that walking in this afternoon? That when this group of people, when we worship, when the worship team leads us in worship, that what is happening is that the, the, the glory of God, the power of Jesus, the vision for God's life, God's, the vision that God has for your life and my life, for the cosmos, is being declared to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says that's wild. Like, oh, I thought we just came to sing some songs and like, do a craft upstairs with the kids and say hey to one another. Like, when this church gathers, 
The cosmos is put on notice that God is good and God reigns and his kingdom is coming in its fullness. No less than that because you participate in the worship of Jesus in this place. I go, remember that. Remember what Paul would say to you when you're on your way next week, right? You're not just going to sing some songs, see some friends, share some time. You're going to be a part of something that declares to the universe that Jesus Christ is alive, that his heart is beating, and that his love is relentless. But I use that just as an example of what Paul's saying here because that's a wild thing to say and ultimately a wild thing to believe and kind of hard to believe unless we've already come to the conclusion that God has already given us every spiritual blessing, every resource necessary to make it true. So I just want you to think, the next time you think the addiction is too big, I'm powerless against it, or the relationship is too broken, I could never forgive them or they could never forgive me, or the commitment is too costly, it shouldn't be this hard, I don't think I can keep my word, I don't want to do it anymore, or the marriage is too far gone, we've said too much, disappointed too much already, or the pressure is too great, who will I be if they don't accept me, or the job is too important, what will I do without them, what will I do without it, who will I be without it? When we think, God, would you give me something I don't possess so that I can make it or be it or do it? I'm going to be honest, that's a lot of my prayers. God, would you give me this thing external to me that I lack so that I can do this? Paul says, you've already got it. You've already got it. That God could not give you a spiritual blessing that you do not possess in Christ. Everything that this community needs, like not this one, this one and that one, but this one, everything we need to live into faithfulness and discipleship has already been poured out into our life together. That doesn't make it easy. He never says it does. He's about to write some things that are not easy to hear. It doesn't make it easy, but it does, I think, change the question, right? Instead of Matt praying, hey, God, would you please give me this thing I don't have? It becomes, Jesus, would you help me access that which you've already given me? Would you help us access that which you've already given to us? Would you train us in your way so that I might be able to leverage the resources of heaven for your glory in my life and in the life of this church? Changes the question. second thing I think Paul wants us to know as we, as we jump in together to this letter, that we were chosen by God. I mean, sometimes we say things at church and we're like, cool, I was chosen by God. Like, you were chosen by God. Now, if I can do this without crashing the bus into the predestination debate, I'll be doing a great job. I'm not sure. <laughs> like, if you know, you know. If you don't, just thank God for his grace in your life that you don't have to get caught up in that one. But, but Paul says this. He says, you were chosen by God. And let's not lose the force for the trees on that. Like, I don't know how you walked into the room this afternoon. I'd imagine it might help, no matter how you walked into the room, to know that wherever you find yourself, that you have been seen by God and chosen by God. It's not just like it's a church thing we say. I mean, it is a church thing we say because it's true. That you've been seen by God and chosen by God. When you feel unseen by others and unchosen by others, God has seen you and he's chosen you. exactly as you are, under no false pretense. You haven't pulled the wool over his eyes. Like He's seen you as you are and chosen you as you are. It says in verse 4, For he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world. Hear that. He chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, I could be wrong about this. Um, 
I don't think Paul's making a statement about God choosing some people and not choosing other people. I could be wrong about that. I don't think that's what's happening. That is part of the debate around the idea of predestination. And again, I could be wrong. I'd love to talk to you about that if you're like really fired up by the whole conversation. Um, I would love to talk to you about it. I think it's honestly a belief that allows for disagreement while easily staying in the broad field of orthodoxy wherever you shake out on it. I, I do, I believe that. But I don't want to get distracted by that because what I think Paul is saying is exactly what he says, that God has chosen you and that he's chosen me and that he's chosen, I believe, anyone that will choose him. Like he didn't accidentally let you in. He doesn't begrudgingly look at you and say, well, okay, you've convinced me because you've behaved or because you're impressive. Like, or conversely, he doesn't say, I unchoose you because of that thing that haunts your past or that time you screwed it up or because of what you believed about me or yourself or what you've done to others or has been done to you. No, Paul says, before any of this was, any of it, you were chosen. Like you, not the idea of you, not the facsimile version of you, not the placeholder of you, you, Matt, Gracie, Ian, Corey, you, you were chosen. God says, I chose you, I've known you, I've loved you the whole time, I've chosen you. Before the sin you committed, I chose you. Before the sins that were committed against you, I've chosen you. Before anything that you think could disqualify you from my love, I've chosen you. Before your rebellion, I've chosen you. During your rebellion, I choose you. After your rebellion, I will keep choosing you. He doesn't say I choose you if you are holy and blameless. That's not what he says. He doesn't say your behavior earns your identity. Paul says, before you read any further in this letter, you have to know that God has chosen you not because you're holy and blameless, but to be holy and blameless. And if we get our minds around that, especially in the, in the American church, in the American South in 2023, if we get our minds around that one, watch out. It's fascinating to me because I only choose people and things based upon what they are and who they are. I'll be honest. Paul says you've been chosen in order to be. I go, if you walked in this afternoon, you're like, I'm not holy and blameless apart from God. Good, that's the prerequisite. <laughs> like, good, great, fantastic. And if you walked in today thinking that you are holy and blameless, we should probably talk about that at the respond banner afterwards. Like God chose you and me, he saw you and me, and in choosing you and me, he committed himself, hear this, to the process of making us holy and blameless. And if you think that costs you a lot of work, you should see what it costs God. Like, that is a process that he has committed himself to. He chose us to see us that way because he loves us that way. And I go, Paul, I think is saying, like, no matter what you hear me, whatever what you read, no matter how you understand this, if you want to know how much God loves you, you need to know that from the beginning, not knowing, we can talk about that as well, whether or not you choose him, accept his love, he created a space for you in his family. However you, wherever you land on the, like, the predestination thing, God, from the beginning, created a space for you and me in his family. That's the whole adoption of sonship thing. Like you don't accident, someone doesn't accidentally get adopted. Like that is not an accident, right? He said, from the beginning, God has chosen to do something to create for you a space in his family. And it's your space. 
It's not a space that you can sit down in and if somebody else sits down in it before you, like you lose it. It's your space for eternity. And it's always been your space and it will always be your space to take when you want to take it. Paul says, you're dealing with a father who has set you a place at the table and has spent eternity hoping beyond hope that you choose to sit down at it. Now, what if we believe that about ourselves? What would change? The third thing is this. All of this, and I hear the cynicism in my own mind and heart start to speak out when I say this, but this is what Paul says. He says, all of this will be so wonderfully beautiful at the end. Paul says, you can't read this letter without remembering that in the end, it will all be so, so good. Like, don't read this letter if you're not convinced of that. Like, that's what I think Paul means when he gives us this absolute heater in verse 8. He says, with all wisdom and understanding. <laughs> I knew that was going to get Lindsay Cade. <laughs> that one was for in the notes. He says, with all wisdom, and don't laugh at me, it just, it's, like bad, it's like reinforcing bad behavior. With all wisdom and understanding, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. I go, who in here recently has asked, I wonder what God's up to in the world? Paul says, you don't have to ask the question. That he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And this is the purpose, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. If you want to know what God is up to in the universe and the world, that's it, to bring all things under heaven into unity under Christ. And this is the truest thing that you'll hear today, even if it seems like the farthest from the truth, that there is coming a moment in history, Paul says, when the times reach their fulfillment, when everything will be again as it was in the beginning, perfect, ordered, beautiful, and under the good rule of a good king. And Paul says, I'm going to write some things to you in this letter that you hold in your hands that only make sense, that will only make sense, that can only make sense if you're living from a place that understands that to be true. If you're living with that perspective that in the end all things will be as they were in the beginning, good and beautiful and perfect, brought to unity under Jesus. He's going to say in this letter things like, Order your household out of love and mutual submission to one another. We'll talk about that. That only, that only makes sense if we're living in a world in which we are anticipating that all of our relationships will be lived out under the rule of a good king. That only makes sense. In the Roman Empire, that sounds so dumb. But if we're living in anticipation of a world where our relationships will be all lived out under the rule of a good king, then that makes sense. He says, you live now as things will be then. And that sounds crazy. Paul calls it the foolishness of the gospel in other places. That sounds absolutely crazy, and it might be absolutely crazy if it's not true. If it's not true that there is coming a day when Jesus will reign in peace and unify all of this, all of the letters of the letter absolutely makes no sense. But if it's true, Paul says you can begin to live into that reality even now in your life together. And if we're honest, I mean, if we're honest, like soul, gut level honest, I think that's the hope that haunts every human soul that that is actually true. 
religious or otherwise. That is the hope that haunts the human soul. It's why we watch movies about superheroes and hold out hope for the redemption of the worst villains. I watch TV with my kids, and I'm like, this is just hoping that Jesus is a truth teller, right? Like, Captain America only makes sense if Jesus is a truth teller, right? Because it's not happening otherwise. That's right, Woods. I love Captain America, too. Do you see what Paul is saying? Like, do we really see it? He's saying that we don't have to guess at what God is up to in the world. And that is the question, like I said, what's God doing? If he exists, what's he up to? doesn't seem like he's very much interested in us if we read the news, right? And Paul says that's the wrong question to ask. You don't have to ask that question. If you look at the life of Jesus, you already know what God is up to in the world. He's bringing all things back together under the power of the name of his son. He's setting things right. He's working to unify the created order. The question is... Not is God doing that. The question is, will we live in faithful rebellion against the things that are working against God toward that end? That's the question. Will we be faithfully rebellious against the powers and the authorities that are are allied against what God is doing in the universe? That's the question to the church. Not is God up to something. Paul says from the very beginning, you've got to know he's up to something. And the thing that he's doing is amazing. Are you on board with it? Like, are you here for it? Are we confident that the day is coming in which God will make it all right again? And I know how hard that is to think about and believe sometimes. Like, I get it. My TV gets CNN and Fox News and all of them. Like, I get it. Paul says, it's true. Like, God is doing something. We believe it. Paul says in verse 13 that you've been included in Jesus. So he says to them, he says, remember this at the very beginning, you've been included in Jesus, that you've been saved and you've been marked by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, I'm writing you a letter. But before we get to the rest of the letter, I need you to have really clearly established in your mind, I need to tell you that you need to remember that God has seen you and that in seeing you, God has chosen you and that God is working in you and through you to make everything beautiful again. Believe it because it's the truest thing about you. Before you get to the rest of the letter, you have to know that. And I go, why would we skip that, right? <laughs> why would we reduce that down to book, chapter, and verse, or what Paul thinks about this esoteric theological point? Like, that's the context in which it all works itself out in, seen by God, chosen by God, worked in and through by God for his glory and the restoration and redemption and salvation of all people and all things. And that's why Paul sits down to write and doesn't put a period in there for 14 verses or however many, right? There's just no time, like... I can get excited about that. So if you're here today and that sounds like something that you want to be in on, then just like be in on it. Like that's the, like, do you want to be in on it? Paul says, you believe it, you're in on it. Like be in on it if you want to be in on that. We'll pray in a minute. We would love to pray with you and for you in that. Paul says, if you want it, all you have to do is believe it. And so do. And then tell somebody about it and we'll celebrate the mess out of it. Like we'll like change the set here in a minute. We'll do like, we'll... I don't know, somebody said that I would say we could like go to a river. Like, we'll do that. Like, I'll do it. Like, tempt, like, test me. We will go find some water somewhere. Like, if you want to be baptized, we'll do it. But if you're here today and you've already heard all this before, and it's not like I learned this for the first time, it's like I remember this for the 30th time, then I guess I'm inviting you into what Paul invites the Ephesian church into. Don't take another step forward in this letter until you've remembered it, until you've internalized it, and until you walk away from it, giving glory to God for all that he's done. He says, if you're going to get the rest of this, it's essential that you start from that place. It's essential, and it's not just essential, it's beautiful. Just like God is not just useful, but he's beautiful. 
we don't just get the blessings of God. We get God himself in a relationship. I think that's what Paul would say to us. Let's pray together. We'll take communion. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your word. We do. We thank you for the reality that Paul writes to us about. And so much more of that reality that we can't even, like, don't have time for, can't even fathom as we sit down to, like, parse out what he's saying. At the beginning of this letter to the church that you loved and that he loved, to this church that we love, Lord, we pray that you would move among us, that you would remind us of all that is true and beautiful and good, that every man, woman, and child in this place would realize that they've been seen by you, known by you, chosen by you, from the foundations of the universe, not just in theory, but in practice. Like, and then you're choosing of us, God. You have chosen to work in us and through us for your glory. That we would be for the glory of the Father. That our lives would exist for your glory, God. That we'd be so caught up in what you're doing that when people would see your work in our lives, they would just praise you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. So as we take communion together, Father, would you remember that it is a meal of identity, that we take bread, we receive bread, we receive the cup, and in doing so, we receive our identity. We don't earn our identity. We don't work for our identity. We were chosen by you. And that in your choosing of us, you've seen us come. There's not a thing that you don't know about us. You haven't chosen us based upon our merits, or our intelligence, or the good things that we've done, or the bad things that we've hidden. (laughs) You've chosen us because you've loved us. There's no one beyond your love that we might say that in theory, but God, would you help us to live that in the reality of our lives? There's no one in this room beyond your choosing, Jesus. There's no one in this room, Father, that you wouldn't pull the chair out from your table to welcome in the place of honor. There's no one in our community or our city who you wouldn't welcome with open arms at your table, Jesus. May we, as we participate in your table this afternoon, realize that it is a table of welcome, but it is also a table of mission because there are chairs that don't yet have people sitting in them. Seats that were designed from the very foundation of the earth to be for them. Would you give us a burden? Would you place a burden on our church's heart for those people? Would you give us the courage to follow you into the world for your glory and the restoration and redemption of all things? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.